Welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. This is a podcast of in-depth interviews with opinion shapers and thinkers and authors and leaders and people of high achievement. And you can learn more about us and learn how to join our engaged and growing community of regular interactive listeners simply by going to Gray Matter, that's gray with an E, uh, dot show. And again, that's graymatter.show. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Bill McKibben, who says in his latest book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon, that he has spent much of his life as an activist, and indeed he has. He has been, one could say, maybe without exaggeration, trying to save the world uh, because he's a major leader in terms of the fight to do something and do something drastic and necessary about climate change. He's also, and let me say this clearly an idealist and, and environmental warrior and the author of many other books, including the bestsellers Falter, Deep Economy, and The End of Nature. And that was the first book to warn the general public about the climate crisis. He's Schumann, Distinguished Scholar of Environmental Studies at Millbury College, a recipient of the Gandhi Peace Award, the Thomas Merton Award, and the Right Livelihood Award. And he's also founder of the Global Glass, Grassroots Climate Campaign, 350.org and a new project which we'll talk about. It's organizing people over 60, and it's called uh, The Third Act. We're going to talk with him about recent historic U.S. climate change legislation, not only nationally but in California, and his new book, which is subtitled, I ought to mention, A Graying American Looks Back at His Suburban Boyhood and Wonders What the Hell Happened. And uh, that's gray of a different matter. That is, we are gray matter in terms of what we like to think is not being black or white and being more nuanced and... We're talking about Bill and I as maybe graying people, but welcome, Bill McKibben. Delighted to have well, you back with Michael, us. Well, Michael, what a pleasure to be with you. It feels like we've been having this conversation in stages for decades, and it's a real pleasure to renew it today. Likewise, the feeling is mutual. And in terms of uh, this conversation, it gets me right to what's of great concern to both of us, and that is the status of the climate and what's happening. It's scorching here in California, and I want to talk to you about this fifth biggest economy in the world, that is California, which has gone through some very serious flurry of legislative acts. But first, uh, and also talk to you about your book and so much else, let's just talk about the Inflation Reduction Act first, though. This is historic uh, by many people's lights, but I have two questions about it. And let me, before I ask you those questions, which are intertwined, uh, give a little background to those who are perhaps not familiar, just kind of highlight. It's, it is going to reduce fossil fuel use and strengthen regulation of green, greenhouse gases, no doubt about that. And it's going to cut emissions by half of what 2005 levels are by 2030, spend about $370 billion on climate change programs, and have some pretty large tax incentives to advance renewable energy and electric cars. In other words, moving more toward green energy in both development and deployment. So the two questions that are intertwined here is, is this still too little too late, <laughs> even though it sounds like a lot and it is historic? And what about all those other nations, Bill? <laughs> well, first of all, everything's going to be too little too late. I mean, we've wasted 30 years in dealing with the climate crisis, so we're now way, way behind and scrambling to catch up. And of course, we should be throwing more money, more energy, more focus at it even than we are. But that said, uh, this is a remarkable achievement, if only for being 
the first thing that Congress has ever done about climate change. You know, it, Congress, the U.S. Congress was where the world learned about global warming or the greenhouse effect, as we called it in 1988, when Jim Hansen, young NASA physicist, testified before the Senate that global warming was real. That was the moment at which it became a public affair. And it took 34 years and 50 days for the U.S. Congress to act on that information from Mr. Hansen. Uh, so the mere fact that it did anything was important. And I think that the numbers in the bill, they're not as big as they should be, may be big enough to really spur some change. And if that happens, then its effect will be global. Every time that the installation of the installed capacity of solar power doubles, the price falls another 30%. It isn't like fossil fuel, it's almost the opposite, because as we get better at it, um, it gets cheaper and cheaper, not more expensive. And that applies all over the planet. So with any luck, this will be one of the things that drives the clean energy revolution over the next seven or eight years, which is the period of time when it has to be driven. If we don't make it happen very fast, then it's not going to matter because the planet will go past irrevocable tipping points. Well, I think you've summarized it very well, and I thank you for that. I was a little bit concerned in my reading that, well, some of the big oil companies are on board here, but there are federal auctions of land and oil and gas drilling that are part of this legislation, there's, isn't it? There's a lot of there's a lot of gifts for the bad guys in this. Look, it had to be negotiated with Joe Manchin, and Joe Manchin's taken more money from the fossil fuel industry than anybody else in Washington. Not an easy contest to win, but he won it, and Big Oil got their money's worth. There's a $100 billion or more in just flat-out gifts to the big oil companies in there. I hope that those turn out to be kind of going away presents, uh, you know, um, that, that they're the last gasp of their ability to game our political system as they've done so effectively for so many decades. Uh, and I hope that it's overwhelmed by the, the rapid, rapid fall in the price of clean energy. We're at a remarkable moment right now, Michael. Uh, you know, the cheapest way to generate power on planet Earth is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. That's Hogwarts scale magic. And it, it really allows us to imagine, as I wrote in The New Yorker earlier this year, that for the first time in 200,000 years, human beings might, well, might decide to end our career of setting things on fire. It served us well, served us well right at the start when we learned how to cook food and we could move away from the equator and, and so on. And it served us sort of well during the Industrial Revolution when it brought us modernity. But now it's bringing us nothing but trouble. And we have the capacity to shift from it, to take advantage of the fact that the good Lord hung a large ball of burning gas 93 million miles up in the sky. And we now have the wit to take full advantage of it. I, I think you there in California may be one of the first places in the planet that really finds out if how true that's how true that possibility is. And I think that that 50 billion or so that Governor Newsom is going to sign this week in California specific energy legislation may prove to be almost important as important as the money in the federal bill. 
And one can assume that because California is such a large economy globally, it will have a lot of effect beyond our borders, or one can at least hope that. Uh, yes, California is California is Germany in terms of economics. You know, uh, it's that big and that important. What about environmental justice? There doesn't seem to be much in this legislation. At least I'm talking again about the national legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, that really addresses that, or even seems to bring that into focus. Well, actually, in the IRA thing, there's actually a lot of money that's directed at environmental justice communities and vulnerable communities. And it's really the first time that a federal piece of legislation like this has targeted money in that way. However, it also comes with this side deal that speeds up permitting for uh, uh, things, including fossil fuel pipelines and things. And that's a real... If it if that side deal ends up being adopted, that'll be a real blow to environmental justice communities. So people are fighting it and fighting it hard. There'll be a big rally in D.C. on September 8th, and there's lots of ways for people to get involved before then. In California, I was particularly glad to see that one of the bills that Newsom will sign uh, finally puts into effect this 3,200-foot setback for oil wells from people's houses and schools so that we no longer have this just incredibly grotesque images of in the one of the richest places on earth you know children playing in the shadow of oil derricks in their schoolyards the governor also is extending Diablo Canyon the nuclear power plant by 5 years something that he at one time was opposed to but he's Talking about no CO2 in the atmosphere uh, by 2045 and new restrictions on oil and gas drilling. I mean, this is a pretty expansive bill, to put it, a number of bills. I mean, it's a whole flurry of legislation. I kind of see it as a gestalt, if you will. I, I think you're probably right. And, and I think it probably may say something about the governor's uh, uh, national intentions. We shall see. Well, he's gone to Florida and he's gone to Texas. Uh, we'll uh, avoid politics here, except to ask you, in terms of politics, there's a lot that could be done through executive order, isn't there? I mean, I was just thinking about this in a number of ways. Uh, I mean, at least theoretically. We've been talking about carbon tax for a long time, about uh, cooling the planet by blasting sulfates into the atmosphere. Aren't these things that could come from the White House, potentially? Well, I don't think either of those things can come. The president can't declare a carbon tax on his own. And I don't think it'll, I think it'll be a long time before the president of the United States decides to unilaterally alter the atmosphere. But there are things that the president can do. Um, uh, and, and it was the threat of some of those things that helped convince Manchin to sign on to this bill. Uh, but the president could continue to restrict oil and gas leasing, for instance, and, and should. Uh, and, and the president has made clear that he's going to keep on doing more stuff on the climate crisis, as of course he must, because the climate crisis keeps deepening. You in California this week are having a, a savage heat wave, but it's about number six on the list of bad climate effects right at the moment. I mean, look at Pakistan. The Indus River is 100 kilometers wide after a, the greatest flooding since Noah. 
China has just come through not a week of hot weather, but 90 days of a heat wave that's all but unprecedented on the planet. Uh, the Yangtze is uh, dried to a trickle, as have many of the great rivers of Europe. So we're on, we're not in a good spot, Michael. Uh, well, I was half kidding about what the president is capable of doing, so because there's so much made of executive orders, but certainly there's the bully pulpit and there's executive action on greenhouse gas, which is really quite plausible in a bigger way, isn't it? Absolutely right. So let's let's hope that he keeps the pressure on. I would imagine that we've seen most of what we're going to see between now and the midterm elections. But I, I, depending on how those come out, I think there's real possibilities for lots more action out of Washington. And what about the fact that uh, at, at this point, everybody's speculating about refugees of climate change. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, within the matter of well, a couple of decades, we're all going to be probably moving north. There are so many places that will be uninhabitable. I don't mean to make this sound like Cassandra, but, you know, well, everything is moving toward just getting hotter and hotter, isn't it? That's correct. There are already a lot of climate refugees in this planet. Uh, last year, the UN High Commission on Refugees said that the number of people displaced by weather was now outstripping the number displaced by violent conflict. And of course, violent conflict is increasingly driven by changes in climate and weather. So this is a tremendously serious uh, uh, aspect of all of this. And you're right, it'll produce even within the US, I imagine internal migration going forward. <laughs> I was, you know, I live in Vermont, Michael, and I just, there was just a, a big study of all 3,006 counties in America, ranking them in order from the ones that are uh, likely to have the most to the least damage from climate change. The four, the four most favored counties in all of America were all in Vermont and our 14 counties were all in the top 40. So we're beginning to wonder if there may not be a, uh, a wagon train coming over the horizon of, of people moving to the Green Mountains. I don't know how welcome all those people would be, uh, but the reality is that Vermont has had some very nice climates uh, in terms of cold weather, uh, if you like cold weather, and it's going to heat up like everywhere else. I mean, it's that's right. I'm afraid our ski industry may not be um, may not prosper as the century wears on. Well, speaking of which, I mean, we're talking, by the way, with Bill McKibben. His new book is "The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon," and uh, the subtitle is "A Graying American Looks Back at His Suburban Boyhood and Wonders What the Hell Happened." And we'll talk about the book, but first, I want to talk more about climate change with you because the Arctic is heating up at about four times the rate of the rest of the planet. Uh, I mean, we're facing maybe, well, Arctic ice cap is mostly melted at this point. No Arctic? <laughs> yes, and that, that's producing extraordinary knock-on effects. Um, you notice, I'm sure, that we get stuck in these periods of drought or rainfall now, depending on which side of the jet stream you end up on. And the jet stream is becoming much more, the amplitude of it is much greater. And we think that the reason is that there's less of a temperature gradient between the equator and the poles. Now that there's all that, you know, blue water up there in the, uh, the Arctic Ocean. Uh, so it's driving extraordinary change in that way. And the melt in the Arctic also uh, seems to be connected to what scientists are now very worried about is a fairly rapid diminution of the flow of the Gulf Stream. So because it's pouring a lot of fresh water into the North Atlantic. So 
between monkeying around with the jet stream and the Gulf Stream, you're, I mean, we're, we're not talking about small cosmetic changes on planet Earth. We're talking about uh, uh, reaching in there and yanking around some of the major organs. What about these other nations, though? I raised the, the specter of, uh, and again, you know, I don't want to sound too fatalistic here, but uh, they're just not doing very much, a lot of them, of what needs to be done as far as carbon capturing. Well, I, you know, I think that's probably overstated some, Michael. Uh, China's the biggest emitter um, now of carbon dioxide, though, of course, not in per capita terms, that would be us, nor in historical terms, that would be us too. China will never match our production of CO2 total production, which is what counts since that stuff sits up there for 100 years or more. You know, the the carbon that came out of the back of my Plymouth Fury when I was learning to drive is still up there heating the planet. Um, but the Chinese now are installing renewable energy at a pace that would make Californians blush. Uh, they're putting it in faster by far than any other place on the planet. So I, I think in a way, the most crucial country going forward may turn out to be India. I was just going to say, India has a bigger population now than China does. And you know they're just move, not moving very rapidly at all. They're about 15 years behind China on the energy curve in general. Uh, they use very little energy at the moment, but they will use more. And the, because the price of renewable energy has dropped so fast and so hard, there's at least a chance that India could become the first major economy to partially sidestep the fossil fuels on their way to industrialization. Um, it, 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 it's entirely plausible, but of course, it's politically difficult there as everywhere. Uh, Modi, uh, not one of the more enlightened leaders on the planet, uh, campaigned for his office on board the private jet of the biggest coal company in India. Uh, so look, the, the, the politics plays out much the same almost everywhere. Well, we're getting some questions. I'd like to go to some of these questions before we talk some more. Uh, again, we're talking with Bill McKibben and uh, going to talk about his book and many other things. Uh, but here's Dennis, uh, Dennis Champion Walker, who's joining us from Mansfield in the UK, who says, some scientists argue global heating will stop as soon as we reach net zero. Is that true? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, the elevated heating we're already um, undergoing won't stop until we get the... Um, the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere back at least below 350 parts per million, probably closer to 275, which is what it was before the Industrial Revolution. But uh, a, a significant landmark on the way to that goal uh, to that goal is the moment when we're no longer adding more carbon to the atmosphere. And, and we can only do that by replacing coal and gas and oil with sun and wind and batteries. And here's Eric from Washington, D.C., who says, regarding climate change, if it is too late for practical interventions, should we start focusing on relocation where possible away from coastlines, even at the cost of much higher energy expenditures, or just let market forces sort that part out? Well, it's not too late for practical interventions. We've raised the temperature of the planet one degree Celsius, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit already. That's We're not going backwards on that. And we're probably going to get fairly close to two degrees, even if we do everything right at this point. Uh, but if we don't do everything right, the temperature will go up three degrees Celsius or more, five or six degrees Fahrenheit in this century. 
And if that happens, we will not be able to have civilizations like the ones we're used to having. So the biggest fight right now is to rapidly, rapidly transition off fossil fuel so we can hold that temperature increase as low as possible. Look, Michael, people younger than you and I are going to have to deal with the consequences as they play out of those increases in temperature. And they will be difficult and grim, but they may be survivable if we can hold them low enough. So that's job one at the moment. Is 1.5 Celsius now an impossible dream? Um, it, it's not impossible. We're, we're almost certainly going to go past it. But if we do everything we can now, the overshoot uh, past it may not be too great or too long. But that would require just remarkably nimble and focused attention. It would require really that we that we behave the way we behaved in the years running up to World War II, when we just focused entirely our economy on one task. As Chad from Columbia, Missouri wants to know, what are some things I can do at home and teach my kids to do to make better use of energy and help save our planet? Well, Chad, you can, you, there's a lot of things you can do at home, and you probably know what most of them are. And I bet you've done some of them already, lighting. And I mean, you should have solar panels on your roof uh, as soon as there's an affordable way to do it, which generally depends on getting your legislature or now the Congress to provide some help. And with any luck, you'll be able to connect that up, that solar panel up to an electric vehicle, either a car or a bike uh, in the garage. That's what I've done for many years and, and quite like it. But, but, but I, I remind myself constantly that that's not how we're going to solve this problem at this point. We don't have enough time to just do it one household at a time. So the most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to shift the basic political and economic ground rules so we can make things happen at pace. That's why we set up things like 350.org or Third Act to give people easy ways to be uh, punch above their weight. I want to talk with you about Third Act and your book, as I said I would, but uh, let me just ask a quick question that has been sort of tormenting me, and that is when we talk about climate change and all of the deleterious effects on the planet and all of the things that are making impact and you know, one can get easily depressed about it, you keep crusading and you keep your energy up, and I want to find out what the secret is to that before we uh, say goodbye to you. But, you know, when you think about the fires and the hurricanes and the tornadoes and so forth, also what has to be factored in here are the health effects. Infectious diseases are up with climate change problems, with climate problems, aren't they? With the climate well, crisis? Yeah. Yes, but an even deeper uh, health effect comes straight from fossil fuel, Michael. Um, look, we've been talking about the reason to get off fossil fuel as the existential risk of climate change, and that's very true. But there are two other reasons. Uh, the public health experts last year finally really got their act together in terms of the, the gross numbers. And what they've concluded is that about 9 million people a year die around the world from breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuels, mostly particulates. Nine million's a lot. It's almost one death in five on this planet. So bigger than HIV, AIDS, malaria, TB, war, terrorism combined, way, way bigger than COVID. Um, and, and all of that is 
now unnecessary. I mean, the vaccine for dying of particulates in your lungs is uh, electric cars and electric bikes and uh, air source heat pumps and magnetic induction cooktops and all things that we have and are able to use. Um, the third reason to get off fossil fuel really became clear again uh, this February, when, as you may have noticed, uh, Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine, uh, something that was possible only because he has control of a lot of oil and gas. 60% of his export earnings come from oil and gas. Look around your house and see if you can find something of Russian manufacture to boycott, unless there's an old bottle of Stoliknaya back liquor cabinet someplace. I bet you won't find a thing because all they are is just a big gas station. And they've used that control over fossil fuel to intimidate Western Europe for two decades. Well, Putin has carried out his you know, increasingly unsavory activities. Um, and, and so getting off fossil fuel in this case would mean getting off that kind of link between autocracy and scarce resources. The people who control necessary but scarce resources always end up with more power than they deserve, whether it's the Koch brothers, our biggest oil and gas barons, who used their winnings to purchase a political party and deform our democracy, or whether it's the king of Saudi Arabia, who you know, cuts people's heads off with a sword, but because we need his oil, we, we, you know, just go along with it. Or whether it's Vladimir Putin, who's terrorizing the planet in a kind of weird echo of the, you know, 1950s or 40s, uh, uh, solely because he's got enough hydrocarbons to let him do it. Yeah, someone, you, you describe Russia as being like a gas station. Someone said, yeah, a gas station, but a gas station with nukes. And, uh, you know, we get into this whole question of, well, should we move more toward nuclear power? I mean, at one time, you, you as a leading environmentalist and most leading environmentalists were very opposed to nuclear power plants. And we got one in Ukraine now that we have to be concerned about. We also have Putin making threats about nuclear weapons. But the fact is, nuclear power may really be the way to go to a greater extent. I mean, like I said, Gavin Newsom has said, uh, keep Diablo Canyon open. Yeah, uh, Gavin Newsom's going to keep Diablo Canyon open, but my guess is he's not going to build any more nuclear power plants. And the reason will have less to do with public safety than it will to do with economics. The price of renewable energy has just gone down, 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 down. Uh, uh, and the price of nuclear power has continued to rise for the last decade. Uh, because, well, I mean, look what's going on in Ukraine right now. Uh, those are good power stations uh, at Zaprazhi, but uh, they're also, you, you, I mean, there's also an undeniable risk that comes with them. Um, I mean, if you're having a, a tank battle in the parking lot of a solar farm, the worst thing you got to worry about is some broken glass, but that's not the case of what's going on here. Now, we also have to worry about what to do with nuclear fuel and how to dispose of it, but that's a whole. Maybe that's a subject for us for a whole podcast in itself. I, I'm willing to. I'm willing to bet that, given enough time, humans can figure out that. That strikes me as less of an existential risk than uh, what happens when you burn fossil fuel. Well, excuse um, me. NASA says send it into space. <laughs> at well, one point, they said that. At any rate, yeah. Who knows. Again, we're talking to Bill McKibben, and as I said, he's got a new book out called The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon, which I want to talk about. Uh, 
particularly in light of the fact that he raises this question and tries to answer it about uh, where we went wrong. And I'm not just talking about despoiling the environment or trashing it or however you want to see it. I'm, I'm talking about sort of uh, going away from citizenship more toward a kind of rabid individualism or hyper-individualism and loss of community and the kind of uh, private versus public uh, that we've moved uh, in a metamorphosis or a morphing to, uh, you, you get into some, I think, culpability here that really interested me as a reader. Um, I mean, part of the way I read your book was it's a kind of fall from Eden, you know, uh, because racism was in the marrow of uh, at least American civilization and even your happy little town there, Lexington, Massachusetts, where you moved to when you were 10 years old a town that's associated with the American Revolution, you've got this sense of uh, Americans having, well, lost their sense of uh, what they should be on the right track all about. And uh, after the Europeans arrived, the the sort of genocidal actions, not only literal killing of uh, Native people, but killing off their languages and killing off their cultures and all of those terrible sins, it's almost uh, something right out of Genesis. Like I said, you know, Eden has fallen. And you write about that in a very poignant way. Uh, what I, as a reader, found myself thinking about, though, was what can we do about it? And uh, you, it, it, with climate change, it becomes really a riddle and a, a terrible paradox and all the rest of it. But you'd have this third act now. And the third act says some of the people who are culpable are the silent generation and the baby boomers who thought more about consumption than they did about the planet and all the other things we've been talking about. So that's the generation that really needs to be much more activist and has a responsibility to be much more activist because the young people are doing a lot. Young people are out there, you know, being idealists like following Bill McKibben much more than, I mean, you've got a lot of great people too, I know, but uh, you want the, you want the legions of great people. How do you get them? <laughs> well, it's funny. It's people are turning out in droves. We started this third act thing about eight months ago and it is, it's progressive organizing for people over the age of 60. And the two issues that we're really taking on are, uh, what's happened to our democracy, uh, as, uh, which has, as you note, strong uh, overtones around race and racial equality and what happened to our climate. And uh, it's one of your neighbors there in the Bay Area, uh, Akaya Windwood, who's been one of my great collaborators on this work and and so much fun to get to work with her and and many others in that part of the world and elsewhere. Um, People have been signing up by their tens of thousands. And I think the reason is because, you know, if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, your first act was in this period of epic social and cultural and political transformation. Uh, the period when we started taking women seriously in public life and wondered if perhaps there was a way other than war to solve problems and the first Earth Day and the apex of the civil rights movement. You can tell what an important moment it was because every crappy thing that the Supreme Court's done in the last six months has been aimed right at that period of time, at the Voting Rights Act of 1965, at the Gun Control Reform Act of 1968, the Clean Air Act of 1970 and Uh, Roe v. Wade in 1973. So I think our slogan has been, (laughs) we won these fights once, we can win them again. Um, I I did start thinking about organizing this third act work as I was writing this book. 
and thinking back about my own boyhood, uh, the period of time I was describing, the 70s, really, in late 60s, 70s in, in suburban America, I think was in many ways the hinge point uh, 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 of our time when we made a pretty fateful decision. Um, the project that America had been embarked on during the Depression and through the Second World War, and even in the prosperity that followed it uh, uh, with the turmoil of the 60s, was the project of building a better America. Uh, what LBJ called a great society, what Dr. King called a beloved community. Um, that project by the end of the 1970s had petered out uh, and was replaced by the Reagan era project of each person getting rich themselves, the era when government had become the problem, not the solution. Uh, uh, and that era of hyper-individualism lasted most of my uh, adult lifetime. And, and I, I think we pay the price for it now. I wanted to understand, A, where it came from, how it happened in that era, and B, as you say, what we could do about it now, especially those of us who lived through it. Well, I said we didn't necessarily want to get too political here. But on the other hand, you do blame Reaganism. You put a lot of the onus of blame onto what well, you just described. But Reaganism could only have happened if there'd been a a market for it, as it were. And of course, you got to see it in a sense close up in California in that decade of the 70s. Two years before Reagan was elected, uh, the other really fateful political thing happened, uh, which was the passage of Proposition 13 and the tax revolt. And really, what was that? It was, uh, you know, as people had gotten richer, uh, as the value of their suburban homes had risen, a kind of increasing conservatism and, and well, let's say it what it was, a kind of selfishness uh, had taken hold. And, and people began to act that out politically. Some of it was race-based, no question. Uh, and some of it was just what happened as this extraordinary burst of prosperity uh, took place around us. Well, this brings me to another question coming from the UK, which uh, I think you're probably asked uh, in different forms frequently. But uh, this is, how do you maintain the enthusiasm to keep campaigning to save the world when there seem to be so many people who don't want it to be saved? <laughs> well, I guess the good news is I think there's more who do. And I get to encounter them all, all the time. And that's what keeps me going. Uh, movement building which we kind of started in around climate with, you know, 350.org 15 years ago, has gone well. I mean, I think that taken as a whole, the climate movement's probably the biggest movement the world's ever seen. And we've had real successes. You know, we've blocked the Keystone Pipeline. We've run these divestment campaigns that have uh, caused institutions with endowments and portfolios worth about $40 trillion to get out of coal or oil or gas. Um, and, and now we start to see at least marginal political successes like this Inflation Reduction Act. Is it enough or fast enough? No, but there's a kind of accelerating momentum that comes uh, as you near uh, tipping points, either physical, which will be bad, or political, which would be good. And, and so we aim hard and work hard, and there's enough 
victories to keep us engaged, I think, and to, I hope, entice more people in because, boy, oh boy, this work gets easier the more hands that take it up. Well, speaking about more hands, I just wonder if sometimes it becomes personally frustrating and maybe saps your vitality when you think of all the hydra-headed monsters that you're up against. I'll use that <laughs> metaphor advisedly, but you know, you cut off one and then another arm comes out and grabs you. I'm not only talking about moneyed interests, I'm talking also about apathy, which is a great yes. enemy here. Well, look, I, truthfully for me, the most depressing part of the whole thing has been the rise of this sort of Trumpishness, uh, which I didn't anticipate in my lifetime. I mean, I, I, if you'd asked me when I was young, even in the middle of Watergate, did I think we would reach the point when Americans would be climbing the steps of the Capitol, killing police officers to stop the counting of votes? I, I would have said, no, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but I was wrong. And so that did, I mean, that was scary and is scary. And I think it unleashed some energy, but also sapped energy because it was so frightening. But along with preserving the climate, one of our jobs is to preserve that democracy and to enhance it and to make it stronger. So we've got people from the third act working hard on that, registering voters, signing up to be poll watchers, figuring out how to make our democracy work again. And we've got people from the third act working hard on climate. In, in particular, we're taking on the banks that are the big funders of the fossil fuel industry. Chase, City, Wells Fargo, B of A uh, are the four biggest lenders to the fossil fuel industry in the world. So by next spring, we've got tens of thousands of people pledged to cut up their credit cards and, and beginning to push blue state and blue city treasurers to change their banks and so on and so forth. Um, we can't have these guys funding stuff that scientists just say is not okay. Well, here's Cindy Drozda from Erie, Colorado, who says, Bill, I want us to get off fossil fuels and carbon production. My worry is about the batteries for EVs. What would you say about the manufacturing and disposal of them? I'd say it's not great. Uh, as with any industrial thing, there are there's you can have problems both environmental and in this case with human rights. You know, um, things like mining cobalt have been done in gruesome ways sometimes. I think that in both counts, there's at least some momentum to get it make it better, but. There's no free lunch. I mean, this will be uh, no question will create environmental problems, just way, way fewer than what we're creating at the moment. And if you think about it for a little while, you begin to sense why. So let's think about something like lithium that you need to mine in order to make uh, solar panels or batteries. Um, yeah, it's, you have to mine it. You have to go and dig a hole in the ground and pull it up. So it's a dirty process. But once you've mined it and turned it into the piece of renewable technology, you don't need to mine it again. I mean, the solar panels sit there for 25 or 30 years at least, uh, you know, collecting energy as the sun rises above the horizon. It's not like mining coal where you have to 
mine some and then set it on fire and then mine some more the next day. So the guess from your neighbor, Mark Jacobson there at Stanford, the, one of the leading authorities in all of this, is that the total mining burden on the planet will drop about 80% as we switch to renewable energy. Um, you get a sense of this by, by here's a statistic that I predict will stick in your mind. 40% of all the ship traffic on planet Earth is just people moving coal and oil and gas back and forth to be burnt. That's it, not moving goods uh, 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 or even raw materials, just the energy with which to produce them. Um, if we, if you have a wind turbine, you have to put it in a ship once to get it from Denmark or wherever it's coming from. But once you put it up, it just stands there for a very long time, catching the breeze and and and. So the possibility for a world that's does has less material throughput, less damage is very real. As I say, uh, we have a big ball of burning gas 93 million miles away up there. We might as well make full use of it. Talking with Bill McKibben, and when you talk about statistics that stay in one's head, one from your book that has stayed in my head is you're talking again about uh, the silent generation and uh, the baby boomers. Seventy percent of the wealth is controlled by those two generations. Whoa. Yeah, com compared with about five percent for millennials. So the next time someone says, OK, boomer to you, don't take it too hard, you know. Um, um, it, it, this is why it's so important that we get uh, these groups engaged in these fights because they have real structural power. They have all the money and we all vote all the time. There's no known way to keep old people from voting. So, you know, we're going to have outsized power. Well, you're getting gray. Uh, I'm just losing my hair, so we should make that distinction. Uh, I want to get to some more of uh, people who are listening to us who want to join in here with questions. Uh, this is Chris Clark who writes, The only two sharp dips in U.S. CO2 emissions came as a result of disasters, 9-11 and COVID-19 stay-home orders. Should we be looking forward to an even bigger disaster, like an electromagnetic pulse to force us in the right direction? I, the, the problem is that they're so temporary. Um, uh, you know, right after COVID, it banged right back up. So what we have to do is make a structural shift. And I hope that's what's happening as a result of this Inflation Reduction Act, as a result of what Governor Newsom's doing. Uh, you guys will have a front row seat to see if it's actually starting to drive down emissions over the next couple of years. You know, you write in your book also about reparations and what's due to black people because, I mean, even they're up there in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, I learned more about Lexington than I ever imagined I would, you know, about the history <laughs> and a history particularly towards slaves and uh, the treatment of black people. And it's it's an eye opener, uh, not all that shocking but uh, or surprising to me, but at the same time, a real eye opener. Uh, at the same time, we, we just recently had an episode with John McWhorter, and he talks about reparations in terms of they've already been paid with affirmative action and uh, programs and special programs to move people of color ahead and all of that sort of thing. I, I take it you would disagree with that? Well, the racial wealth gap has widened over the last 50 years. And the reason is that people who were able to got in on the ground floor of that 
suburban real estate boom. 1970, my parents bought their house in Lexington for 30 grand, which would be about $200,000 in today's money. It got sold last year for a uh, million dollars. So that $800,000 appreciation was just the uh, golden ticket you got for being in the right place at the right time. But of course, a lot of people couldn't be in the right place at the right time in 1970 because American history had made sure they didn't have that $30,000 to pony up. And uh, so I, I think that there continues to be a serious debt owed. And I don't think it's the only debt we owe. Uh, uh, you know, that burst of American suburbanization also produced the largest single puff of CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, China's industrialization comes second to American suburbanization as a source of carbon dioxide. And that's what's making life intolerable for billions of people around the planet. It's not like people in Pakistan who are suffering through this flooding caused it. Uh, the average Pakistani produces a 15th as much carbon dioxide as the average American. So um, there are debts of several kinds to be paid. And I guess the good news is we got so rich that we can afford to pay some of them, you know? <laughs> Here's Juan Robles joining us from Mexico City. And Juan wants to know, how do you inspire people that aren't convinced that climate change is really happening? Well, it depends. If they're, if they're ideologically inclined not to believe it, if they've spent the last 30 years, you know, listening to some combination of Rush Limbaugh and Tucker Carlson, well, I, then I, I, I think the odds are small. But if they're just haven't been paying much attention or things, I think Mother Nature is making it clearer all the time what's going on. And there are people who are persuaded by, say, if they're religiously inclined, the fact that the Pope has become the biggest spokesman for climate action that there may be on planet Earth. If there are people who care about national security, uh, the Pentagon has made it very clear that our stability is threatened more by uh, climate change than by anything else. If they're just people with a uh, straightforward sense of economics who can do math, clearly the cost of the damage that's coming with climate change far outweighs the cost of what we need to do to transition off fossil fuel. So there are ways in. I confess, one that I spend less time worrying about how to convert the unconverted than I do about taking that 70% of the population who realizes that there is a problem and getting some higher percentage of them actually engaged in the fight. It's why we do things like set up third act to make it easier for people to join in. And what kind of argument did you use when you were organizing against uh, the Keystone Pipeline to those who said, we are dependent upon pipelines of this sort, we have to move forward economically, it's going to hurt us economically if we don't? Well, the argument we used was we have been dependent on these, but we can't be in the future. This thing's designed to last for 50 years. And if 50 years from now, we're still pumping tar sands oil out of Canada, then our planet's going to be a graveyard, you know. So this is a moment to start making this decisive transition. Obviously, we can't stop burning fossil fuel tomorrow, though that tomorrow needs to be coming closer. What we definitely can stop doing is building new stuff designed to last for decades. 
We have to wean ourselves off fossil fuel aggressively. And that begins by not going out and buying a, you know, a whole new stockpile of the stuff and sticking it in the, in the larder. And I should mention uh, Bill McKibben started his activism. He writes uh, in his new book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. He was all of 10 years old uh, in a protest in Lexington where his family had moved to uh, against the war in Vietnam, even though he, he didn't know much about the war in Vietnam uh, at the time. But, you know, he has uh, certainly learned a great deal since that point. And uh, I had mentioned you winning the Gandhi Award and one of our Listeners uh, in Central Florida, Hershey Theta wants to know what experiences you went through in receiving the named Gandhi Award from the start uh, that I mentioned at the start of the show. Well, it was a great honor because Gandhi is one of my tremendous heroes on this planet. I think that when we look back at the 20th century, when historians look back eons from now, they'll think of two great inventions from the 20th century. One was the solar panel, and the other was the nonviolent social movement. And Gandhi was a key inventor of that. Dr. King and the suffragettes and other million people whose names we don't know played roles too. But Gandhi's talent for the politics of gesture, making salt on the beach, uh, uh, was uh, unmatched. And, and he gave us this gift with which we can go forward to change the world. I will say that one of the great sadnesses for the moment in me, for me, is that Gandhi is increasingly dishonored in his home country. I suppose that's what the fate of prophets in their own country in a certain sense. Um, but it, it stings every time one sees that the man who assassinated him and the movement out of which he grew uh, is more powerful than ever in Indian politics and and uh, lore. Well, Gandhi was uh, was a great man, and as you said, certainly along with so few that we could name, other than Gandhi and King, maybe Henry David Thoreau really led to the whole notion of civil disobedience and protesting to make things occur that need to occur from the standpoint of social or political change. Just wonder, though, you know, you mentioned the insurrection before, and there are some who say the only way that we can bring about change in this country, you're hearing it from the right and the left, and here we are sort of in this nuanced position of grayness here, but are trying to be, uh, that we're going to have to do things in a nonviolent way, by any means necessary, as Malcolm X uh, kind of said, uh, ballot or the bullet and all that. Um, are we, for example, really at the stage now where we can move forward with, and you're talking about this with the third act, with civil disobedience uh, in ways that are traditional and really make change? Well, the, to the degree that we can study these things, uh, the political scientists are concluding that nonviolent action has been far more effective in recent decades than violent revolutionary action. The real authority here is probably Erica Chenoweth at Harvard, whose work is remarkable, and I recommend it to people. But she's studied categorically the all the kind of uprisings of recent decades and concluded that nonviolence is the powerful, powerful method. If you think about it, um, taking up arms is uh, uh, unlikely to be, if you're taking them up against the kind of power of the status quo, it's unlikely to be very effective because the status quo, the government, the powers that be almost by definition have more arms than you do. Um, and, and 
it's the remarkable alchemical properties of nonviolence that interest me. It's ability to transmute weakness into strength and so provide a way for the small and the many to stand up to the mighty and the few. Now, what did you say, for example, when all of that anger and rage uh, came out in terms of destruction of property and the like after, well, after the killing, really, of George Floyd uh, and others, uh, Breonna Taylor, etc.? I mean, there was, there was a kind of minor insurrection there in some ways uh, compared to maybe, I don't want to get into comparing these things, any kind of violence of that sort, uh, I don't approve of, and I'm sure we're on the same page on that, but... There were people who felt that that was necessary to bring attention. I thought the most effective parts of those demonstrations were the nonviolent ones, and the uh, and I think that's virtually always the case. Um, as one tries to move more and more people into um, into a changed heart, um, that seems to be the most effective way to go about it. But I guess I guess if we keep finding ourselves in these situations, we'll have more data points to know. Because yes, it's also human nature to react uh, uh, with rage to that kind of provocation. It's also human nature sometimes to be gloomy and pessimistic. And what saves you from that? I mean, you've always been well. I'm not upbeat, I'm not, dedicated. I'm, I'm not saying you're a Pollyanna or anything of that sort. Don't misunderstand. I'm not proof it. against it. I mean, you know, the name of the first book that I wrote about all of this was "The End of Nature." <laughs> so I'm not. I have I have my uh, dyspeptic side, um, but uh, you know, we keep organizing and more people keep showing up, and and that's good. I also, of course, have the great luxury of living deep in the woods. It's a luxury in a lot of ways. It means I don't need much money to live so I can organize when I, you know, and I've been a volunteer at this for decades. But it also means that I can go out for a walk every day and be reminded of what a beautiful planet it still is, even in its distress. And and that, um, that bucks me up. You also have a great wife, uh, we should Indeed mention. Indeed I do. <laughs> I mean, Sue Halpern, uh, who I had the privilege of interviewing a number of years ago with her book on monarch butterflies, is a memorable interview. And uh, Well, she is the brains of our operation, there is no question. And I mean that literally. Sue was, among other things, the first uh, female Rhodes Scholar that America ever produced. So uh, she carries the conversation around the dinner table, no question. Well, it's a distinguished family, and certainly uh, you have done extraordinary work that really is immeasurable. Uh, where do you want to take Third Act, and where do you want to go with it? Well, I, I, I hope that it turns into a way for um, older people to make sure that we redeem our experience. I, you know, Our second act may have been more focused, as you said, on consumerism than it was on citizenship. But that's water under the bridge, and now we emerge into this new um, time with lots of skills and resources, maybe some time, with kids and grandkids that make this abstract question of legacy quite concrete. And so we want to fight in good, good, positive, powerful ways. One of the things that makes it easier is the, um, you know, the... Um, the that the many of the iconic figures of that early first act are still around uh and and as i tell my young friends you know uh, say what you will we produce the greatest music of all time uh 
And so it's really fun to have Carol King and Bette Midler and Patti Smith and people uh, pitching in and helping out. And I think that's contributed to the general spirit of the thing. We were doing a big uh, rally outside a bank not long ago, uh, trying to get it to stop uh, funding the oil industry. And uh, of course, there are a lot of high school kids there because they're super engaged and they're somewhat spryer. So they were off at the front of the march. But at the back, there's a big crowd of us with a big banner that said fossils against fossil fuels. So there you are. We're <laughs> doing what we can in the in the right spirit. There's also I wonder if you agree with me on this. Somehow we need a shift in an ethic or it's a philosophical question uh, in some regards uh, but the uh, you point out in your book that too much suffering has resulted from uh, other people go moving ahead and and uh, especially in consumerism and prosperity and all the rest of it in other words on the backs of too many others uh, and and the suffering of too many others have many of us prospered or thrived uh, goes the argument so you have to kind of change don't you uh, something deep in the culture and an ethical attitude? I think so. I'll tell you the bumper sticker I hate the most in the whole world, Michael. You must have seen it on the back of Winnebago someplace or something. It says, I'm spending my kid's inheritance. Um, I don't know why, but that just always drives me out of my mind because that's, I mean, because it's literally true. <laughs> We're spending our kids' inheritance. You can see it in every cubic meter of the atmosphere and in every, you know, uh, uh, dried up riverbed. But there's also just something so repugnant about it. Like, that's not our job. Uh, uh, that's not how working society works. Uh, working society uh, tries to make uh, their kids and everybody's kids' lives easier. And we can do that still, but only if we really work at it. So in some respects, what you're saying sort of conforms to the idea of saving the planet. You have to look to the future. You have to look to the next generation of progeny and those who have yet to come uh, and those who are growing up and so forth and really, I guess, cherish them in a different way or value them in a different way. That's right. And I think it means thinking about being serious elders, what that means. It's a particular role for a particular time in life. We do not need to be in the lead. We do not mean to be running things all the time. It's a great joy to get to back up people who are doing really good thinking and really good work. And, and I find that young people take it as a great pleasure to have older people working alongside them. Uh, and they feel reassured by it too, uh, that, that they're not alone and that the kind of chain of human civilization hasn't broken, hasn't snapped entirely. So you see some hope here, ultimately, don't you? I'm, I am see, uh, see enough reason for the moment to get out of bed and keep making trouble every day. Well, I hope you continue making a lot of trouble and uh, have success with the third act in your book. The book, again, is called The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. This is the first memoir that you've done, isn't it? <laughs> first and last. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how I felt about mine, except that I felt I did it when I was too young. Really good to have you with us. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Michael, I really enjoyed it, and it's just good to hear your voice. Take care, friend. Yeah, and you take care of yourself and all of you who are listening. Thank you for being with us for this episode of Gray Matter. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.